0: Try four weeks of The Spectator absolutely free. And for this month only, you'll receive a Spectator wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. This week, my guest is Philippe Sands, the human rights lawyer and writer, whose new book is called The Ratline: Love, Lies and Justice on the Trail of a Nazi Fugitive. Philippe, welcome.
1: Hi, Sam. It's great to be back with you again. Really, really pleased.
0: Well, it's a delight, though the the story you tell is one that isn't all sunshine. The Rat Line, in some sense, I mean, it tells the story of Otto Wachter, very, very senior Nazi who ran a department of Poland during the war and it proceeds in some ways from your previous book East West Street. Can you talk about kind of the germ of this book because it does seem to have you know at least in your personal story come out of your your previous book. Sure. Sure it is indeed
1: it's part of a I suppose part of a bigger and longer project in fact there will be a third book uh, in due course, in probably about five years' time. And it does relate to the East West Street Project, although I'm not allowed to call it a sequel, because I'm told that if you call it a sequel, people feel they've got to read the first one, and this one stands alone. But in the context of the research on the previous book, I was introduced to a man called Horst Vechter who was the son of Otto Wescher, the governor of Krakow and the governor of the district of Galicia based in Lemberg, which happened to be where my grandfather came from. And I was introduced to him by Nicholas Frank, the son of Hans Frank, Hitler's leader in occupied Poland, as being different from Nicholas, who hates his father. Nicholas said to me, you should meet Horst because he loves his father, although you will like him. We did meet and I did like him. He's a gentleman, and he's a very open man, which I appreciate hugely. But unlike Nicholas, he thinks his dad was rather a good thing. And for three or four years, our relationship grew and grew until one day, entirely by accident, basically because Nicholas had called him a, uh, a new Nazi, which I don't think he is, and which Nicholas retracted, Horst said to me, what can I do to prove that I'm not a Nazi? And I said, well, I don't think you're a Nazi, but if you want to prove it, why don't you give that family archive you've talked to me about, but which I haven't seen, to a museum in the interest of transparency and openness, and then people can look at it and form their own view. He said, terrific idea, which museum? I suggested the US Holocaust Museum in Washington DC because they had some great archivists. And he said, terrific They came over, digitised 10,000 pages of his mum and dad's private papers. And he very generously then said, would you like a copy? And I said, yes, I'd love a copy. And a few days later, a USB with thousands of pages of German documents dropped through my letterbox. And I let it linger for a bit. I'd sort of go into it, look at the photographs, because they were easy to look at, which were pretty striking look at some of the letters, some of the diaries. And around that time, I happened to have dinner with Lisa Jardine, who sadly is no longer with us, who had recently given a wonderful inaugural lecture. She called it Temptation in the Archives. And it focused, interestingly enough, on why personal documents are useful and important in understanding bigger historical narratives and she was the really the one who got this going and said this is marvelous material let's work together on it and that's how this project began
0: well let's start a sketch who was otto i mean you've said said what his role in occupied poland was but what was you know what was the character of the man what was you know can you sketch in his story and his relationship with his wife a little cuz charlotte is a big sure. part of the story as well
1: sure she sure is Otto Wächter, born 1901, Uh, Austrian, his father, a military man, a general for the emperor in the imperial army, goes to university, goes to law school, qualifies, joins the Nazi party very early, meets Charlotte Wächter in 1929. They sort of fall in love. They date for three years. She gets pregnant. He rises up the echelons of the Austrian Nazi system In 1934, he is involved in the assassination of the Austrian chancellor, Dollfuss. He flees, he goes to Germany. Uh, He is there until 1938, when the Germans occupy Austria. And within three days, he is back and standing on the balcony of the Hofburg Palace in the Heldenplatz, right next to Adolf Hitler, welcoming, if you like, the arrival of the Führer. And his meteoric career then begins. He gets a first job, about a year spent in the new Austrian Nazi government. His job is to weed out Jews and other undesirables from public service. And he is then appointed governor of Krakow in 1939. It is he who authorises the construction of the Krakow ghetto and three years later, he is sent to the district of Galicia, Lemberg, where he does the dirty work for Himmler in the extermination of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Jews and Poles. The Red Army takes Lemberg in the summer of 44. He flees quickly back to Berlin, then posted to Italy. And then on 9th of May 1945, he disappears off the face of the earth, a man indicted for mass murder. By now, he has a family. He has married Charlotta in 1932. She's seven years his junior. They met in 1929 in a rail carriage at Vienna's West Bahnhof, heading off to go skiing, although separately. And they have a life that lasts 20 years together. They produce six children. She also has three abortions. He has numerous love affairs and the private papers of Charlotte and Otto, their diaries, their reminiscences, their letters, about 10,000 pages, are the beating heart, if you like, of this book.
0: It's a book with all these sort of twists and turns, but one of the big twists, kind of about halfway through the book, is we discover that, in fact, having, you know, we say he's disappeared off the face of the earth in 1945... He very much hasn't, and you find that, don't you, by reading between the lines in Charlotte's letters to him. Indeed. I
1: met uh, Horst in very early 2012, and at that point, all I knew was basically what was on Wikipedia, that Otto Wächter had died in 1949. I didn't know anything more, and frankly, I didn't ask anything more, and Horst never talked about it. It was only after we'd known each other for about four years, some point in 2015, and I started going through the papers that I became interested in what happened to his father, because amongst the letters were a vast number of letters between 1945 and 1949. And as we started to make our way through these letters, and I had some wonderful research assistants, James Everest, uh, Lisa Jardine's last PhD student, my assistant, uh, Lea mein Klinks German, we suddenly realised that these letters contained the entire story of what had happened to Otto Wächter between the 9th of May 1945 and the 13th of July 1949 when he dies. And it is a pretty remarkable story. I, I obviously don't want to give away all of the details and all of the twists, but in short, he flees. And he doesn't flee very far from his wife. He goes and hides in a place where he is told the British and the Americans are too stupid and too lazy to go and look for him, that is in the mountains above 2,000 meters. He encounters a young Waffen-SS soldier called Burkhard Ratman, who is a mountain killer. He has been working in the former Yugoslavia, killing partisans and communists and Jews and others. And he knows how to survive in Alpine conditions. And he takes... Otto under his wing and takes him high up into the mountains. But remarkably, what we discover through the letters is that Charlotte is in close contact with him throughout this period. Indeed, will go and visit him every two or three weeks, bringing provisions, bringing clothing, bringing skis. And she effectively saves him and Boko And even more remarkably, at a certain point, I say to Horst, tell me about this fellow, Buko Hatman. What was he like? What motivated him? Why did he want to save your dad? And Horst looked at me and said, well, Philippe, I can answer all of your questions um, or we could telephone him. So this was 2000, this was 2016. Oh, 2017, I can't remember exactly. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he lives in central Germany and he's 95 years old and he's in good health. And I speak to him regularly. I've even visited him. Let's talk to him. And there and then Horst just called him and we agreed to go meet. And I spent a day with Buko Hatman, And it was surreal. I mean, you were in the company of a man of 95 who had lived for three years in total isolation. With Otto Wetter, had never spoken to anybody about it. It was an extraordinary encounter. He imposed only one condition to the interview, and that is that I not ask a single question about what happened before 9th of May 1945. The moment I did, the interview would be terminated. And his daughter later explained that was because for 70 years he'd lived in absolute fear that he was going to be indicted for murder, killings, and his other activities uh, during the war so i never asked him
0: i was sort of <laughs> gripped by that detail because i wonder you know you're a human rights lawyer you know you're the cat and he's the mouse in this particular setup did you did you kind of bridle at that how did you feel about sitting down with a confirmed essentially fugitive former nazi and saying you know what we'll just put to one side absolutely everything that happened before 1945.
1: Well, you know how the human brain works. We're, we're all partitioned to different characters. And I suppose my lawyer side of me switched off and I was just utterly fascinated to be with someone who'd been with Otto Vecher for three years. I mean, it was a sort of an amazing opportunity. So we spent several hours together I, I, it was a really weird interview. He talked quite openly. I don't think he told us everything. He, I just had that sort of litigator sense that he was withholding certain bits and pieces. But as I was interviewing, I couldn't help but look at the bookshelf over his shoulder, and I couldn't get close enough to see it. But after the interview was over, I went to see a photograph that had caught my attention on the bookshelf behind him. But it was a tiny photograph, and so I couldn't see really what it was. And It was only afterwards that I saw on his bookshelf right behind him, 2017, a little black and white photograph of the Fuhrer. And I thought that indicated rather clearly where his sympathies lay, certainly back then, but possibly even still today. Those were the great days and he was very happy to talk about them.
0: I mean, that's a sort of window into the sense in which For me, at least, reading this book, it's a book in lots and lots of ways about complicity and about dealing with, you know, that there is no easy break with the past. and There is no kind of cut off from historical guilt. And at the heart of it is your relationship, it seems to me, with Horst, which is, as you put it quite early on, you said some of your conversations with him were essentially advocacy. Both you were sort of trying gently to make the case to him that his father had not been the great man that he thinks he was. And Horst, throughout this book, presented with piece after piece of evidence that actually Otto Wächter was right at the centre of the killing of tens of hundreds of thousands of people. He still won't quite concede it. Oh, he won't
1: concede it at all. I mean, it's a very complex relationship. I have to say at the outset two things. One, I like Horst. Two, he's not a Nazi, and that is the starting point for our relationship. And I've always been able to talk very openly with him. He recognises the horrors of what happened in that period, and he recognises that his father had a role to play in them. What he doesn't want to recognise is that his father was a criminal. His narrative is that Dad was a basically decent guy, trying to do the best in difficult circumstances with good values and he would not have wished bad things on anyone. I mean, that is a rosy version of what happened. I think the historical facts are plainly established. He was deeply involved in what happened, a willing, knowing, active, fully engaged participant. I suppose the reason I'm able to be generous to Horst is that I see Horst, in a sense, as a victim. If you like, a different side of the story from my grandfather or from my mother, but I always go back to one of our earliest conversations when he was describing to me his birthday party in April 1945. He was six years old, and as he's talking to me about his recognition as a child that the end was coming, his entire world was in a state of collapse, everything was about to be lost, he began to weep. And that touched me greatly because I understood in that moment that everything that had come subsequently was about recreating that sense of family and togetherness that would forever be lost after the war came to an end. And in a sense, Horst's narrative is a narrative of survival, of finding a way to get through each day, knowing deep in his heart the terrible wrong that his father did. But perhaps even more importantly, I think Horst's engagement with his father is not about his love of his father, but his love of his mother. And the story, I think, is a simple one. Horst plainly loves his mother deeply. His mother loved him. She was the favourite out of... He was the favourite out of the six children. And his mother loved his dad. And to honour his mother, he needs to do what he can to resurrect the reputation of his father. I think it's not a complex story.
0: Otto... Ends up, after this period hiding in in the mountains, um, kind of ends up in Italy, ends up in Rome on the the titular rat line. He's trying to get to Argentina and he dies in Rome and there's a a whole question of what surrounded that death. But in some sense, you could have ended the book sort of halfway through. You could have gone, you know, we'll get up to Otto's death. But you open it out to use him as a window into what was going on in the post-war years Can you talk a bit about what you discovered and what that tells you about the kind of mesh of loyalties and complex behaviours that surrounded the sort of post-war Nazi diaspora, if that's the way to put it?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I mean, it was a really unexpected and accidental discovery. So we have all this material. He comes down from the mountain and we go into the next phase. And, of course, what we have... It's a very extensive correspondence between Charlotta and Otto in 1948 and 1949. And we have his diary, uh, which is a sort of coded diary, and the documents he had with him in Rome. And this was an act of extreme detective work because both Charlotta and Otto knew they were being observed or they were under surveillance or that people were after him because he was indicted for mass murder and all of his friends had been... ..caught and tried and sentenced to death. So the language used in the letters and the diaries is coded. Names are referred to. But very slowly, we stumbled across the story of what had happened to him. We were able to identify each and every one of the group of willing helpers he encountered in Rome. And from that, an amazing cast of characters emerged a bishop in the Vatican, a senior Nazi, the secretary general of the fascist party, a collective of allies, which was unexpected, which allowed us and perhaps anyone for the first time to work out how the rat line worked. The rat line describes the path, if you like, from Italy to South America, largely to Argentina, but also Chile. Chile. Bolivia and other places and it was the path followed by Joseph Mengele and Adolf Eichmann and Klaus Barbie and its existence is known and who went along it is known but I think this may be the first time we've got the inside contemporaneous papers to explain how it worked and how you got onto it and who was the community that participated in enabling this to happen. So This sort of emerged completely unexpectedly, but the most unexpected part of it, and of course I don't want to give away too much, was the role of the Americans and the British. Uh, We're dealing here with the Vatican, with Nazis, with fascists, and one would assume that somehow this is not something that the Americans would wish to be too involved in. But of course that turned out not to be the case at all, and it turned out that those who were helping Otto Wächter had an immensely close relationship to uh, the Americans. Now, I was so surprised about all of this that I went to get advice, because I'm not an expert at all, far from it, on espionage and the Cold War. This is a totally new area for me. And I hadn't expected we would open the curtain on this place. So I went to my neighbour, who is an expert on this, John le Carré. And I just dropped him a note and said look this is really weird I've stumbled across espionage and cold war but I don't understand what's going on here could you help me so he said well send me a few of the key documents bring some cakes come and have tea and we'll talk about it I turned up a few days later and the very first thing he said which really floored me was um actually Philippe I was there in 1949 I said what do you mean he said He said, I was 18 years old and I was a young soldier in the British Army and my job was to interrogate Nazis and find the ones we could recruit. (laughs) This came totally out of the blue. He was fascinated and he was a fantastic help uh, on this, obviously. And the story that then emerges in the pages of the book then emerges and I know I've stumbled across something that is extraordinary but also fascinating but also very human, I think, at a certain level.
0: David, or, or John McCurry, however you want to call him, he, no. <laughs> he, he, he sort of described how, you know, there's an enormous amount of kind of political expediency. He says, because there, there was a suggestion, and I hope this doesn't give too much away, that Otto's death might have been a murder, that he might have been poisoned. And you're kind of looking around, you know, who might have killed him, might, who might have wanted to, and... David says, oh, no, the the Russians wouldn't have bumped him off. They'd have turned him. Yes, There's a whole strand of real instrumentality, isn't there, in in that post-war set of relationships? Well, there's
1: a strand of instrumentality in that post-war relationships. And, of course, it tells us a lot about the world today. I mean, you're peeling an onion. I think I'm writing a story about some Nazi bloke and his wife and his son. And all of a sudden, I've entered a door to a place that is called Cold War espionage, which I have to read myself into, and I discover in reading myself into it a whole lot of material about the role of the United States in Italy in that incredible period, 1948-1949, because Italy is the front line in the Cold War. Why? Why? The leader of the Italian Communist Party has taken refuge during the war in Moscow, has come back to Italy, and, of course, is seen by many as Moscow's man in Europe. And if the Russians can get a foothold in Italy, they have a foothold in Europe, which, of course, engages the Americans to work with the Christian Democrats and the Vatican in the famous election of 1948, which the Christian Democrats win, and you have then a conflict between East and West localised in the city of Rome in the country of Italy into which Otto Vechter stumbles somewhat unwittingly and he effectively gets caught up in this much bigger struggle. And his allies are entirely unexpected. His allies, it turns out, in a curious way, are the people he thinks are his hunters. But the crucial question is, What does he know and when? And that sort of emerges as the story unfolds.
0: I'm curious, as somebody who's pretty heavily invested professionally and through your whole career, in the idea of human rights as being something that are unchanging, transnational, not subject, ideally, to political interests. How did untangling all this affect your understanding of or view of that area of... Of your work,
1: well, welcome to the real world, Sam. Nothing is ever quite what it seems, and you learn in the work that I do. I mean, I'm in, you know involved right now in cases on the Yazidis and the Rohingya and Ansang Sushi and all of that. Nothing is ever only quite what it seems. You have to scratch and you have to dig, and the alliances will often be very, very unexpected. On this one, I have to say, I'm I'm hesitating slightly because I don't want to give everything away. But if you had said to me that the Americans would have recruited certain categories of characters to their cause in 1948, I would have said, no way. No way that's possible. And yet, with the help of some extraordinary academics, uh, David Kurtzer, Pulitzer Prize winner, American scholar, Norman Goder, who's the leading historian on the Americans and the Nazis after the war, we uncovered some amazing documents and some amazing characters. One of the joys of this kind of research, it's a bit like running a case in court. You sniff that something is there, but it's not immediately apparent. So you have to do a great deal of detective work in uncovering. So you get a reference in Otto Wächter's diary to a character identified only as G, the letter G. No name, no other details. It takes four years to work out who G is. And we then identified G as a former Nazi who's now an American spy. And he has, as Le Carre puts it, turned on a sixpence in the course of just three or four years, and shifted his allegiances in a completely different direction. So it astonishes, it amazes, it surprises, and yet it's the new normal, I suppose. And it's something we encounter in our own lives. I mean, in domestic politics, in international politics, we know that alliances are created that are utterly
0: unexpected. Yeah. I was going to say, as a parenthesis, the isn't of Le Carre being everywhere, he told you he met Simone Wiesenthal. he not only told
1: me he met Simon Wiesenthal but he imitated Simon Wiesenthal one of the things about John is he's a fantastic mimic maybe I should dig up and send to you that moment where he interviews Wiesenthal I think I quote it in the book I'm just going to look it up because the quotation I'm just going to get the quotation exactly right let's just pause for a sec ah ah page 307 I've got it Uh, why don't I just read it out (laughs) and it's I met Wiesenthal once, David Cornwall added, in Vienna in 1962. He was statesmanlike, seated behind a vast desk, ostentatiously covered with many files. A real spook would have insisted on a bare desk. Why do you live in Vienna, the heartland of anti-Semitism? Le Carré asked him. In retelling the response, Le Carré adopts a fine Middle European accent, one that reminded me of my grandfather. If you are studying the disease, Wiesenthal told Le Carre, you have to live in the swamp. And um, he's just such a good storyteller, Le Carre, and he met all of these characters and he was there and his role was important because I couldn't quite believe what it was that I'd stumbled across and he reassured me that it was true or that it could be true, and that it was accurate. And he encouraged me to find in the American archives, which took hundreds of hours, I've got to say, but we were assisted by wonderful Norman Goda, amazing documents. And we were, over the course of four years, able to uncover with absolute precision the exact circumstances of of what Vechte did in Rome, who he met, and who his fateful last weekend was spent with which opens another remarkable story. One of the things that is curiously at the heart of this book, as in so many books, as in life, is sex. Sex is sort of all over the place. And sex rears its head left, right and centre in this book in the most unexpected places. Um, For example, in 1936, Wächter has fled Austria, having been involved in the killing of Chancellor Dolphus and he's now working as a sort of Nazi in Berlin, and his wife finally joins him. And she discovers on arriving in Berlin that he's having an affair with a young lady called Trauter. A few months later, she's pregnant, and eventually she gives birth to their second daughter. And she decides to get her own back on her husband, that she will name their new child Trauter in honour of his paramour, which is what happens. That is the Wächters, meets the Wächters. And then if you go far on... Later into the story, you, uh, as I did, stumble across the extraordinary circumstances in which various Americans have affairs and produce children who then get married, who then have grandchildren, and the entanglement of spies and Nazis and Americans becomes absolute and total and ends up taking me to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I meet a man who will... uh, be very surprised to find out his own involvement in this story. You couldn't sort of invent it, actually.
0: Oh, and also, actually, the kind of poignant and strange detail that Charlotte, for a time, is in love with her her husband's boss. <laughs>
1: well, that we discovered again by accident. You know, you know what it's like. I don't know whether you keep a diary, but diaries are sort of carefully written and coded, and it's only when you've read and reread and reread another three or four times that you work out what's happened. And I remember at a certain point, my wonderful assistant, Leah sent an email saying, I think I've come across something that you'll find interesting. I said, oh, what's that? She said, well, I, I think Charlotta fell in love with Hans Frank. I said, what? She said, yes, it's summer of 1942. And the text is very difficult to decipher, and we spent a lot of time on it. But yes, indeed, it turns out that Charlotta lost her heart to her husband's boss, to Hans Frank. And she describes it in considerable detail, to the point that she is unable to be in a room by herself with him because of his anxiety of what is about to happen. I send the original diary pages to Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, whose response is magical. He emails straight back with a single word, sensational. And then he says, It's amazing, maybe Horst is my brother. (laughs) And I just remember when I got that email, I thought, Well, who knows? This story is
0: so curious that even that is not impossible. Now, again, to return to Horst, and I'm sorry to keep going back to him, but I'm, you know, part of the story of the unfolding of the story is how he receives the unfolding of the story, because this. In some sense, it's kind of a multimedia project (sighs) because it was a film and it was a podcast and it's this book. And all the way along, you're sort of recording his reactions to each successive iteration. Did he shift his ground at all? Well, I meet him in
1: 2011, 2012. It's now 2020. So we've been going for eight or nine years the relationship, I would say, goes and stops and starts. We get on well, then a new fact emerges, then I write a piece in the newspaper, which he doesn't like, or I make a film, which he doesn't like, or we do a stage discussion at the South Bank, which he doesn't like. And for a few weeks, he'll cease contact. And then he'll he'll always come roaring back. And so now I've decided it's important to carry on talking and... The only thing he hasn't seen yet is this book, which I'm just about to send to him. And we will see in what direction that takes things. Of course, as you know, but I definitely don't want to give this away, something happens as a consequence of the podcast, which is very dramatic, and a new person emerges, the next generation, if you like, emerges into the story, the long arm legacy of horror that just keeps rearing its ugly head and that has caused tremendous um, sort of discombobulations i don't know where that will lead to but i suspect in the end we will kiss and make up and carry on our merry dance at no point has he really come close to cracking indeed he has dug his heels in ever deeper and i fear in a certain sense that i'm partly responsible for that the more I find material and share with him the more he digs in his heels. But of course, 10,000 pages of archives is a lot of material and you will be aware that right at the end of all of this, I came across a document that had been sitting right under my nose all along, an email he had written five years before I met him in 2007 sent to his nephew, which showed that his position then was rather different. Uh, and rather more similar to mine. My sense is that deep in his heart, he knows, but he cannot acknowledge what he knows because the act of acknowledgement would lead to a collapse of his entire world. In other words, he has constructed a narrative for himself which allows him to get through each day. It's a narrative of survival, And that is what allows him to make his way through life. The challenge for me, coming back to my role in crime and law and human rights and these kinds of things, is has he crossed a line? At what point does turning a blind eye become an act of complicity? I don't think he is complicit in the crimes of his father's. I don't think he seeks to excuse the crimes of his father's of his father, I think he has tried to construct for himself a world in which he can get up in the morning and feel okay about life and carry on. And that's essentially what it's about, which touches me, I have to say. I think of him as a victim of of what happened 80 years ago in a curious sense, as much as my mother was a victim. And that makes me feel even more empathetic towards him and even warmer towards him, because, of course, he has grown up and lives in a country, which is Austria, which has not really wished to acknowledge what happened and its own role in that period.
0: Yeah, it's curious, isn't it, that he does go back to it. You know, you've said he'll stop and then he'll want to keep open the conversation. Is it kind of picking at a scab?
1: (sighs) How to explain it? One of the parts of the project was a film that I made with my dear friend David Evans, My Nazi Legacy, in the making of that film, we went off to Vienna. We went off to Lemberg. We travelled around. We spent a lot of time together. And I, I did. I have to confess, I got a bit anxious. I care about Horst, and I want him to be well. And I, I would be d- devastated if if I in some way contributed to some disaster. But but I was worried, and 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 the film director David Evans was worried. And so we went and got advice from a couple of uh, a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. You know, what care should we take? In this project, and one of the psychoanalysts drew a very graphic image of the situation. I mean, Horst lives in this incredible castle in northern Austria. He's actually completely impecunious. He bought it for peanuts. He lives in one or two rooms of this vast place, which is essentially unheated. But it's a big, strong building. And the psychoanalyst said, You know, Horst is rather like his schloss. On the outside, the walls are strong, they're thick. They'll last forever, or at least they give that impression. But on the inside, the moment you enter the building, you can see that everything's crumbling. I remember I said to the psychoanalyst at one point, so you're saying I should take very great care? And he said, absolutely, anything could happen. And I said, anything, and he said, yes, anything. Well, that was 2014, and six years on, Horst is alive and well and kicking on strong. So he seems in rude health and fine, but he has not budged his position at all. I think of us, Horst and I, as being sort of engaged in a sort of waltz. It's a dance where I'm pulling him in one direction and he's pulling me in another and neither has succeeded in ultimately pulling the other very far in their own direction.
0: Philip Sands, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. Try four weeks of the Spectator absolutely free. And for this month only, you'll receive a Spectator wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger.